Hello, and welcome to another episode of Where Was This in History Class. This is episode four of season one. The title of this episode is The World After 1493. By the end of this episode, you should be able to explain how the world was altered by the Columbian Exchange. You should also be able to uh, explain the effects of the Atlantic slave trade. And you should also be able to explain what triangular trade was and how it altered uh, global trade. All right. So in our last episode, we discussed the importance of understanding Columbus and his place in history. I tried to stress to you what Professor uh, Lowen and other historians have pointed out, um, which is the fact that Columbus is definitely not the first person to discover the Americas. Rather, we focus on him so heavily because after the news of his discovery makes its way throughout Europe, no one can put that genie back into the bottle. And suddenly, with the help of the printing press, everyone wants in on this exploration game. All right, so you're going to see the number of explorers heading to the New World uh, skyrocket after Columbus. And, and part of that um, effect is because of the printing press. Now, I tend to think of Columbus like one of those social media influencers of today. I'm thinking like a YouTube star or Instagram model. The story of their success makes others want to follow in their footsteps. So the next time you see that girl waiting in line um, at like Disney World or Great Adventure, all right, and you see her posing and forcing her boyfriend to take incredibly staged photos of her so that she could share them on Instagram, I want you to remember that she is trying to become rich and famous, which is similar to what the explorers of the time period were trying to do after Columbus uh, had set sail. Now, there's part of me, I'm going to be honest with you, that, that wants to tell that Instagram boyfriend um, dude, you should definitely smash that phone. And there's, there's a little part of me that wants to see him do that. And, and then, then kind of like rise up and declare that he is so much more than an Instagram boyfriend and that he will no longer take photos unless he is in them. But then again, that raises a whole nother set of issues and questions, and we just don't have time for that. So we're going to move on now, similar to most people who attempt the social media thing, most explorers during this time period are not going to achieve fame and fortune because sailing on the open ocean during this time period is still incredibly dangerous. But like I said in the last episode, this sense of adventure and willingness to ignore danger is something that I do find fascinating about the time period, especially because I know that if you told me right now that most people who go on these journeys are not going to make it back, there's definitely no way I'm getting on that ship. So there is something um, that you have to admire about um, whether it's bravery or maybe stupidity, whatever you want to call it, they got on those ships and they did explore. And there is something that I find fascinating. How do you convince somebody uh, to get on that ship knowing that you're more than likely not coming back? Okay. So for the purposes of this episode, we need to kind of set up uh, the story. So at this point, we are still learning about what is going to become known as the age of exploration or the age of discovery. So in my classroom, I challenge my students to question whether this title uh, for this historical period is an accurate title. Or do they believe that another title would be more fitting? So we discussed the title, in my classroom at least, in terms of perspective. The title Age of Exploration or Age of Discovery is a title that is written from a European perspective. And therefore, when you study it, it only provides you with half of the story. So after listening to episode three, which was Columbus, Hero or Villain, um, I want, and you know, after you finish this episode as well, I want you to consider if the title Age of Exploration or Age of Discovery is an accurate depiction of the time period, or do you think um, another title has to be created in order to better tell the story that is going on um, during this period in history? All right, so as we move forward, I want you to be aware that we are going to divide this episode into three main parts where information is going to be delivered. And I'm going to let you know when we start a new section so that you can pause and sort of process the information 
or um, you could pause and come back at a later time. You know, if it gets too heavy or you're actually using this to study, you may want to pause and come back. All right. So I will definitely mark those sections. So we're going to begin now with part one, which is known as the Columbian Exchange. Okay, so on his way back from the New World, Columbus is going to bring people and various other exotic items back to Spain with him, okay? So unknown to Columbus at the time, his voyages and the voyages of other explorers would lead to the greatest redistribution of plants, animals, people, and diseases that the world has ever seen since the time of Pangaea. So not Avatar, blue, large guy going around kicking butt on a, on a foreign planet, movie Avatar, but actually the, the supercontinent uh, hypothetical theory that all the continents were connected, which we'll get to in just a second. So this will become known as the Columbian Exchange, and some historians will state that this is one of the greatest periods of change in human history and must be considered as important as the agricultural revolution, which helped our ancestors move from the hunter-gatherer tribes to societies that had religion, laws, social stratification, and allowed for future advancements. And ultimately, it's going to help create our modern society. So there are some anthropologists out there and some historians that also point to the idea that most human problems like crime, violence, and other man-made issues occurred because mankind moved from hunter-gatherers to farmers and that the agriculturally-based societies actually created more problems. But seeing as I'm using uh, the internet, a computer, my cell phone, and uh, various other pieces of technology, and I don't need to track down my food for tonight, um, I would say that I, I, I tend to lean towards the idea that the agricultural revolution was a good thing and something that you can use to mark as a major dividing moment in history. The Columbian Exchange, therefore, is another one of these great periods in history that marks a moment that is going to completely change mankind and the world forever. On each voyage between the New World, which consisted of North and South America, the Old World, I'm sorry, and the Old World, which consisted of Europe, Africa, and Asia, explorers are going to bring uh, back plants and animals uh, with them that were previously unknown to those parts of the world. So the trade routes that start with Columbus, they're going to crisscross the Atlantic and begin to transfer these items on the various continents, creating an incredible exchange of plant and animal life, which has not been seen since the continents were once part of that hypothetical supercontinent known as Pangaea. So Pangaea may have existed some 300 to 200 million years ago on this very round planet that we call Earth. That's right, flat earthers did it again, dropping the Earth is round knowledge on you because it is. The Earth is round. All right, but in all seriousness, it is this exchange of plants, animals, microbes, ideas, and people that is going to forever change the world. And this isn't one of those like hyperbolic statements like, oh, snap, this Nickelback album is going to change the world. Well, first of all, why are you listening to Nickelback? Second, the Columbian Exchange actually changed the world because what was done cannot be undone. You, on the other hand, can stop listening to terrible music or you can choose not to and the world is going to continue spinning on in its very round shape. The results of the Columbian Exchange, however, um, are permanent, kind of like bad tattoos or um, the stinging words of my dad telling me that my participation trophy didn't really matter. But... Anyway, that's my childhood. Back to the Columbian Exchange. So let me begin by saying that if you're looking for a resource that will help you better understand the Columbian Exchange, you may want to start with Alfred Crosby. Crosby literally writes the book on the Columbian Exchange. Okay, And if you want to take the guess uh, at, at the title of his book, the title is The Columbian Exchange. And as a professor of history, he is the man 
the myth of let no. But seriously, he is the man responsible for starting a true analysis of this massive transfer between distant uh, continents. So now that we understand the basic concept of the Columbian Exchange, and we have a, a great resource in Crosby, let's discuss what was actually exchanged. So we're going to start with the products that came from the New World to the Old World. So basically they start in the New World, which is North and South America, and they're going to be sent across to the Old World. All right. So these plants and animals include tobacco, pumpkins, turkey, sweet potatoes, squash, avocados, pineapple, peppers, cassava, cacao beans, that's chocolate, peanuts, potatoes, tomatoes, corn, beans, and vanilla. Think about all the food that you take for granted today, like um, pizza from Italy or Swiss chocolate. None of those foods would have existed before the Columbian Exchange. So the next time you eat pizza, at least pizza with red sauce, I need you to think of all the history behind that slice because it would not have been possible without this global exchange. Okay, so now let's discuss the products that came from the old world to the new world. So this, these are the products that are going to come from uh, Africa, Europe, and Asia, and they're going to make their way to the new world in North and South America. Um, so with that being said, these products include coffee, peaches, pears, oranges, uh, limes, olives, bananas, sugar, grapes, turnips, the honeybee, cattle, sheep, pigs, horses, wheat, rice, barley, and oats. And I know that that is a fairly long list, but the point I'm trying to get across to you is that none of those products were in the new world before European explorers began to engage in what becomes known as the Columbian Exchange. So at this point, you're probably wondering yourself, but wait a second, what about all those Western movies where Native Americans are on horses, right? So technically, until the 1500s, Native Americans had never even seen a horse, which kind of blows your mind if you think about it. What was life like uh, for those first Native Americans seeing a horse, um, typically with a with an armored uh, rider on top of it? What was that experience like? What, what, what was going through their minds when they saw a horse for the first time? But very quickly, uh, Native American tribes are going to adapt. They're going to incorporate the horse into their culture, and it's going to alter their daily lives, whether it was fighting war, hunting, or farming. All right, The horse is going to be a game changer for many tribes throughout um, North, North and South America. Okay, so that's kind of like the brighter side of the Columbian Exchange. We are now going to discuss the darker side of the Columbian Exchange. Not dark side, like... Star Wars, but dark side, like this is this is definitely going to be a heavier portion of the uh, of the podcast here. So get ready. So diseases and microbes were a part of the Columbian Exchange, and um, this must make us take pause and reflect on the more devastating aspects of having a connected world. All right, not everything is is going to be good. Not everyone's going to be uh, a winner in a global economy. So these diseases that are exchanged included smallpox, influenza, typhus, measles, malaria and whooping cough. These diseases were responsible for the deaths of potentially millions of Native Americans because as we discussed in the last episode, Native Americans had not been exposed to these diseases until Europeans arrived. And the exposure to such deadly diseases had a devastating impact on Native Americans, uh, both in North and South America. Some suggest that within 100 years of Columbus's first voyage, so we're, we're talking about 1592, Something like 90% of the estimated Native American population were killed as a result of the diseases that Europeans brought with them. It is simply one of the worst disasters in human history. So this will bring us to part two, which is known as the Atlantic slave trade. But first, we are going to hear a word from our sponsors.
Welcome back to part two, the Atlantic slave trade. So the discussion of European diseases was necessary so that we can better understand this next section. What we need to understand is that Europeans originally attempted to use Native Americans as slaves in the New World. Uh, there's evidence that Columbus actually starts this. However, because Native Americans died in such incredible numbers from the forced labor and the diseases that they were experiencing, Europeans uh, are forced to look to Africa for a new source of labor, which is going to create slavery on an industrial scale, essentially taking millions of people from their homes in Africa and forcing them onto ships to make the journey across the Atlantic. And there's no easy way to say this, so we have to just be honest with ourselves and say that this is one of the most disgusting acts that humans have ever done to each other. It's just that simple. So in terms of American history, the first slave ship to trade slaves at an English colony actually happens in 1619. This occurs at the first permanent English colony in North America, which is known as Jamestown. Now, some of you may have thought that I was about to say the Pilgrims, all right? Because somewhere in, in your elementary school education, you were taught that the Pilgrims were the first, uh, you know, British to or English colonists to to settle in the New World, but that's simply not the case, all right? So uh, Jamestown is actually your first permanent English colony, all right? And um, I know here we are again ruining history for people, but um, if you're ready for another one. Uh, I'm going to throw another one at you. Here, here we go. So Pocahontas, all right, uh, never actually marries John Smith. Okay, John Smith's that adventurer and that mercenary in the in the Disney film. All right, um, she marries a guy named John Rolfe. Okay, he's a tobacco grower and he basically helps save the Jamestown colony with tobacco. So do yourself a favor and look up the age gap between John Smith and Pocahontas, and then you let me know if you can ever look at that Disney film the same way again. All right, you might be a little creeped out. But let's get back on topic. So we know that slavery begins almost immediately after the arrival of the Spanish and the Portuguese. But I'm not here to blame these countries for the entire creation of the concept of slavery. What I am going to do is state that these European nations are responsible for this industrialized uh, the scale of slavery here in the New World. Okay, they they create a different form of it. So. I am also going to um, state to you that slavery has been around since the the, the dawn of, of man, essentially, since especially since man has, has created more permanent settlements as a result of the agricultural revolution. However, for our purposes, we don't have time to go into the entire history of slavery, but we can focus on Africa and then how that system of slavery transformed into something larger and more sinister. So let us begin with the fact that slavery had already existed in Africa. Some of the African kingdoms had engaged in slavery, but what we need to understand is that their form of slavery was more like the feudal system, which you have probably learned about in your world history classes. Under the African system of slavery, slaves had more in common uh, with the serfs or uh, peasant class that was tied to the land of their lords in, in Europe. So in general, African slavery was harsh in terms of the work. So I don't want you to give you the impression that it is not a hard way of life. But under the African system, slaves had rights which were not found in the systems of slavery developed by the Spanish and the Portuguese later on. Um, as Howard Zinn states in his book, A People's History of the United States, a slave might marry, own property, himself own a slave, swear an oath, be a competent witness, and ultimately become heir to his master. An Ashante slave, nine out of 10 cases, possibly became an adopted member of the family, and in time, uh, his descendants so merged and intermarried with the owner's kinsmen that only a few would know their origin, end quote. Now, some of you may be asking, well, how does this compare to the system of slavery that was created by the Europeans in the New World? Well, it turns out that we have that answer, and for this, we are going to turn again to primary sources because there is nothing better to use 
than uh, the information from that time period recorded by those who experienced it. For this, we're going to turn to John Newton, who was a former slave trader who eventually becomes an anti-slavery leader. So this quote is definitely going to, uh, to hold some weight for me. All right. So John Newton writes, quote, the state of slavery among these wild, barbarous people, as we esteem them, is much milder than in our colonies. For as on the one hand, they have no land in high cultivation, like our West India plantations, and therefore no call for that excessive, uninterrupted labor, which exhausts our slaves. So on the other hand, no man is permitted to draw blood even from a slave, end quote. What John Newton is stating here is that when he looked at both the African system of slavery and the New World or European system, what he found was that the African system appeared to be much more humane and existed without the racism and the larger amounts of violence that was being conducted by Europeans in their system of slavery. But I do not want to make, uh, uh, but I do want to make one thing clear here. All right, and that is that the information um, that we're being you that that we're using here should not be used by other people to defend the creation of slavery in the New World. Just because Africans had slavery does not give another culture the permission to then create an even larger institution of slavery. So I just want to make that clear. I'm not justifying this in any way. So um, what we need to understand is that by the 1800s. Okay, there's going to be 10 to 15 million Africans who have been taken from their homes and forced upon ships to come to the New World or the Americas. So this brings us to the idea of uh, how did slavery actually take place on the African continent? Again, we don't have the time to analyze every single method, so we are going to speak in generalities of how slavery was conducted in Africa, um, or at least the, how slavery was conducted by the Europeans in Africa. So let's begin. Typically, European nations would establish trading posts in the form of fortresses or forts on the coast of Africa. Now, even though these Europeans established forts on the coast, they were not able to venture deeper into Africa. They were not able to conquer larger tribes, and they could not capture slaves as they needed on their own. You have to remember, at this time, Africa has an estimated population of 100 million people. And uh, many of the African kingdoms and societies are way more advanced than most people today realize. Many of these African kingdoms were organized with armies and efficient governments that could respond to a crisis. And the Europeans, despite their advantage in military technology, would not have been able to conquer or at least been able to hold on to the land that they conquered. So in the end, they have to change up their strategy. And that strategy involves them hiring African tribesmen to capture other Africans turn them into slaves, and bring them to the coast for the Europeans. So in most cases, Europeans are not going deeper into Africa to capture slaves. They are hiring people who know the territory, other African tribes, to do the work for them. So how did this occur? How did they hire them? Well, Europeans at this time had items like guns, steel, glass, tobacco, and alcohol. And um, there's other goods that they're going to use as well, but most of these products are made in Europe, and they're considered to be a manufactured good, all right, not typically found in Africa. So the Europeans would take these products to their trading posts on the African coast, and they would begin to trade with African tribes for slaves. As uh, more and more European products made their way into Africa, the more dependent and even addicted, think about the alcohol part, uh, the more addicted these African tribes would become uh, with these products. So this would cause African tribes to turn against each other uh, over time, uh, causing increased warfare and essentially the breakdown of social norms that, that had exi existed before slavery. So this creates a situation that must have been something um, that was like out of a nightmare. Like all of a sudden, it's a, 
it's a fairly well-functioning society, pretty advanced. And then all of a sudden you start to see, um, this nightmare like condition where tribes are turning against tribes, uh, people against people. And all of a sudden people are being taken away and they're disappearing. So this brings us to the idea that the captured slaves are then brought by their African captors to the coast, which in some cases was essentially a forced march. And it could be as, as much as a thousand miles, uh, before they reached the coast. This was essentially a death sentence for some, as many may have dropped death, uh, may have dropped dead from exhaustion and poor treatment. So now imagine what this must have been like. You've been captured, you're forced to walk hundreds of miles to the coast, you're exhausted, and then you are put into holding pens with other Africans from tribes you don't know, speaking languages you don't understand. As um, John Barrett, who was an agent of a French Royal African Company, stated, as the slave, uh, quote, as the slaves came from Fida, from the inland country, they are put into a booth or prison near the beach, and when the Europeans are to receive them, they are brought out onto a large plain where the ship's surgeons examine every part of every one of them to the smallest member, men and women being stark naked, such as are allowed good and sound are set on one side, marked on the breast with a red hot iron, imprinting the mark of the French, English, or Dutch companies. The branded slaves, after this, are returned to their former booths where they await shipment, sometimes 10 to 15 days, end quote. This, uh, this is just a description of how slavery starts and how slaves were brought to the beach to be sold. It just it absolutely blows my mind. And yet, as bad as this description is, right, it is only going to get worse for the slaves. So once aboard the slave ship, the slaves must um, have thought that the nightmare that they were experiencing was turning into pure hell as the situation turned from bad to worse. Slaves were packed onto these slave ships with uh, some ships holding hundreds of slaves. So on, on, some of, on some of the drawings of the interior of a slave ship, you will see slaves laying next to each other without any room for any sort of personal space. Now combine that, or combine that lack of space rather, with a, a ceiling height of around four feet and the fact that you are chained to one another. Then imagine what it was like to experience the heat of this, this tropical weather, warming the, sh the ship without uh, air conditioning or proper ventilation. Then consider the idea that there's no plumbing and understand that slaves are forced to relieve themselves wherever they sat or laid. This produced conditions that truly must have been hell on earth. Soon, these diseases are going to spread and there's going to be no way to stop them. All this combines to create what is known as the Middle Passage. And this voyage from the African coast to either North or South America takes an estimated 10 to 15 million Africans from their homes. So we're talking 10 to 15 million Africans are going to experience these, these hellish conditions. All right. However, we must also acknowledge that an estimated 2 million of the 10 to 15 million would die as a result of the Middle Passage. So that's how dangerous this journey is, how disgusting this journey is, that 2 million people are not going to even make it, whether it's from disease or or some other condition, uh, maybe a revolt. All right. So what I um, would encourage you to look up is that what you're going to discover is that between diseases, suicides, or or the death from a, an attempted revolt aboard a slave ship, something like two million people are going to die while being forced across the Atlantic. So I encourage you to do some more research about this topic because what I think you're going to find out is is going to amaze you. Uh, for example. The number of slave rev uh, revolts aboard ships is probably underreported because a slave trading company did not want to admit to the insurance companies and potential buyers that they had trouble with a shipment of slaves. This would have been bad for business, but probably occurred more than anyone wants to admit. 
So history is full of these facts and stories like this. So if you're willing to explore a little bit, I think you can learn quite a bit. Okay, so now that was a pretty heavy topic and by no means the complete story. So if you need to, feel free to pause uh, the podcast here at this point and come back when you're ready to continue. If not, if you're still listening, we are going to begin part three. This part is going to be called triangular trade. So at this point, we have learned about the effects of the Columbian Exchange and the rise of the Atlantic slave trade. There's just one more system that we needed to talk about. All right, so earlier we discussed how the Middle Passage was a leg or piece of a larger trading system known as triangular trade, and I won't feel comfortable leaving you today until we understand how triangular trade fits into that story. Eventually, several European nations are going to get in on the exploration and colonization of North and South America, and they're going to establish what you probably all know as colonies in those areas that they control. An easy way to think about this is to look at the languages that dominate certain areas in North and South America. For example, in Canada, you have French and English that are spoken because Canada was once owned by the French and was then taken over by the British after the Seven Years' War. Or you could think about um, the nation of Brazil, which speaks Portuguese and not Spanish because Brazil was once owned by Portugal and not Spain. And at this point, you're probably saying, but aren't there areas in the United States where Spanish is the dominant language? And you would be correct. But what you need to understand is that Spanish has been spoken longer in the United States than any other European language. The borders of the United States eventually expanded into former Spanish-held territories, but the effects of the Spanish uh, culture remained uh, in the forms of both their uh, their language, their food, and other um, other concepts of their culture, which we, we kind of participate every day, but we don't even realize it. All right, so next, we need to understand that there is a major myth that continues to be stated by teachers and others. This myth continues the belief that Europeans came to the New World and that they had to essentially hack out this existence uh, out of the American wilderness and that it was extremely tough, dangerous, and they're basically uh, kind of pulling themselves up by their, their bootstraps, if you will, as they make it through the wilderness. And I'm going to be honest with you, that's that's just simply not accurate. All right, The more accurate story is that European colonists often settled in the areas that had already been cleared by Native Americans. All right, These Native Americans had developed more, um, more techniques for agriculture than I think we realize, like the, the controlled burning of forests in order to clear forests for farmland. Um, however, after the diseases had set upon the Native Americans and wiped out uh, an estimated 90% of their population, some of these villages and cleared areas of farmland are completely left open and empty, and Europeans are able to uh, essentially take them over um, because it's excellent farmland. All right. So I state this because I want to acknowledge that Native American civilizations, similar to African kingdoms, may not have had the, the military technology of Europeans, but their societies were way more advanced than I think people realize today. Again, I want to encourage you to do a little bit more research regarding how advanced and complex these societies were before Europeans arrived. I, once again, I think you're going to be extremely surprised. So this sets up the background to triangular trade. Triangular trade refers to the series of trade routes that crisscrossed the Atlantic and connected the world in a way that created a truly global economy. For those of you who remember math class, a triangle has three sides, and so triangular tri uh, trade involves three major routes. So these points were the Americas, Europe, and Africa. See? Three. These trade routes went back and forth across the Atlantic, but when placed on a map, the routes generally form a triangle, hence the name triangular trade. 
So to get a basic understanding of triangular trade, we need to first understand what was traded. So for our purposes, we're just going to start in Europe. So at this point, feel free to pull up a map of uh, triangular trade or a map of uh, the Atlantic Ocean, which shows North and South America, as well as Africa and Europe. So um, once again, feel free to pull up that map and uh, continue on as you listen. So in Europe, traders are going to drop off raw materials that were grown in North and South America, otherwise known as the Americas. Those ships would then load up with manufactured goods that were made in Europe, such as metal and glass products. Think specialty items that you couldn't easily find outside of Europe at that time. Those ships are then going to sail south to the African coast, where they will unload the manufactured goods and then trade those manufactured goods with African slave, tra slave traders for slaves from the interior of Africa. The slaves are then going to be loaded onto the ships and carried across the Atlantic. This is the part that becomes known as the infamous Middle Passage that we talked about earlier, which was by far the worst part of triangular trade because at this point, human, humans are being transported against their will and something like 2 million Africans will not survive that part of the trip. The ships are then going to dock in ports in either North or South America, and they are going to unload the slaves to be sold to plantation owners, where they would uh, be used to grow cash crops such as tobacco, um, rice, indigo, other, other, other items that can be used throughout the world. And the slaves will then be used to gather other resources, which then continue the system of trade. The ships then loaded up with sugar, rum, wood, iron ore, and other resources, and they begin their journey back to Europe where the whole process starts over again. It is here that we uh, start to see how the European nations viewed their colonies as sources of natural resources and potential buyers of European goods. This is where the concept of mercantilism begins, which involves European nations expanding their control to colonies throughout the world in order to gain access to natural resources, which were necessary to fuel their economies. From here, we could go off on a number of tangents, which include wars that will be fought between these European nations or the revolutions that will occur, such as a little revolution uh, you may have heard of known as the American Revolution. But that's going to have to wait for another episode because we're running out of time. Um, so we're now going to uh, move on to our last section, which is all right, our questions to consider section. So number one, next time you eat a meal, consider where those ingredients came from and how your meal would be different if the Colombian exchange never occurred. Number two, are we still dealing with the effects of the Colombian exchange? When I think of this question, I think of the invasive species of snakes that are still affecting places like Florida and how without a more connected world, those snakes would not be there. But now that they are, they're devastating the ecology. So are we still dealing with the effects of the Columbian Exchange? Number three, can an understanding of the history of the slave trade help us to better understand the social issues of today? Number four, can an understanding of the past, such as learning about Native American and African cultures, better prepare us as citizens of a connected world? On that note, I will leave you with a quote by JFK, President John F. Kennedy. Uh, John F. Kennedy. Quote, the great enemy of the truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic, end quote. Therefore, I encourage each of you to seek the truth and continue your pursuit of history. Thank you for listening to this episode of Where Was This in History Class. If you like what you have heard, please leave a rating and review us. 
And don't forget to subscribe and share with anyone you know who may enjoy this podcast. Thank you for listening.